This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips and this is Rear Vision. Well, there's a parliament again in Northern Ireland, Brexit's happened, and an election down south has produced an astonishing result. What's going on on the island of Ireland? Three years since the collapse of Stormont, Northern Ireland woke up wondering if today would finally be the dawn of a new era. The Sinn Féin or Corda has met today and has taken the decision to re-enter the power-sharing institutions and to nominate ministers to the power-sharing executive. We knew that any deal was going to be an accommodation, but we wanted it to be a fair and balanced deal. And you will see in the deal, whilst of course there is a recognition of those people who want to be facilitated to speak the Irish language, there's also a recognition, of course, that most of us here are British. The leaders of the two main political parties in Northern Ireland, Sinn Féin and the Democratic Unionist Party, announcing they'd reached an agreement, allowing Parliament to sit again after three years in limbo. In this Rear Vision, we'll hear more about what's been going on on the island of Ireland, where shifting political dynamics have once again raised the question of the reunification of the Republic in the South with the six counties in the North that still remain part of the United Kingdom. The Northern Ireland Assembly at Stormont is similar to the other devolved governments in Scotland and Wales, but there's one big difference. Because it was set up as part of the Good Friday Agreement that brought an end to the Troubles, the sectarian violence of the 70s, 80s and 90s, it had to be a government where power is shared by both sides. David McCann is the deputy editor of Northern Ireland's largest current affairs website, Slugger O'Toole. So unlike yeah, so unlike the Scottish Parliament and unlike the Welsh Assembly, we have what's called a power-sharing government in Northern Ireland. So the Northern Ireland Assembly is elected, there are 90 members, but in the Northern Ireland Assembly, when you become a member of the local assembly, one of the first things you have to do is you have to designate as either a unionist, which is a person who wants to maintain the union between Northern Ireland and the rest of Great Britain, or a nationalist. And a nationalist is someone who would like to unify with Southern Ireland. Or you designate as a United Community MLA, and that is basically a MLA who doesn't want to designate as a unionist or a nationalist, right? And why is that important? Because it is from the two main designations of unionist and nationalist is how our government is formed, okay? So the leader of the largest party becomes the first minister, that is currently the DUP. The leader of the second largest party, which is Sinn Féin, becomes the deputy first minister. And those two have to enter office together. One cannot do anything without the other. If one party pulls out, the entire thing comes down. And currently, we actually have the two smaller parties, so the SDLP, which is the smaller nationalist party, and the Ulster Unionists, who are the smaller uh, Unionist party, they're in the power-sharing government as well. And we also have the middle-of-the-road Alliance Party, who don't designate as either Unionist or Nationalist. They're currently in the government as well. So we've got five parties in the power-sharing coalition government. So it can be a bit messy at times. It can be a bit hard to get five parties to sing off the same hymn sheet, so we'll see how it works out. Sinn Féin had pulled out of the government in protest over a scandal-plagued renewable energy scheme. And over the past three years, without a government, public services in Northern Ireland became steadily worse. Despite this, both parties allowed the stalemate to continue until the general election in the UK in December. 
That's when Boris Johnson won a massive majority, one that would ensure his Brexit withdrawal agreement would get through the British Parliament. He no longer needed the votes of the members of the DUP at Westminster, as Theresa May had done, but he did need Stormont up and running for his Brexit agreement to work. Also, says David McCann, the two major Northern Ireland parties did badly in that December election. Essentially, Kerry, what led them back to Stormont was essentially both the Democratic Unionist Party and Sinn Féin were both badly punished at the December Westminster election. The two parties uh, suffered big swings away from them um, in terms of their share of the vote. They lost some seats in some places. So Sinn Féin, for example, were absolutely trounced in the city of Derry, which is a very nationalist city. It was one that Sinn Féin had won from the moderate SDLP last time. Uh, They lost that seat by about 25 points. In December, the DUP also saw their deputy leader lose his seat in North Belfast. Um, They also lost South Belfast, which was a seat they gained in 2017. So those two main parties lost very heavily. They lost votes to the Alliance Party, to the SDLP as well. So they lost their votes to moderate parties. So that was December. So that feeds into... Basically, you're right in saying about Boris Johnson's withdrawal agreement. A key part of it was having the Assembly back up and running. We had an interesting situation in Northern Ireland because the general election was very much about Brexit here. Dr Katie Haywood is a sociologist at Queen's University, Belfast. We had two things going on. First, that background of the Assembly being suspended and people increasingly frustrated at the the poor provision of public services. And then secondly, Brexit was also to the fore. Northern Ireland voted a majority to remain. The majority of parties want Northern Ireland to remain. And so we had a new factor here that we hadn't had in the past, and that was electoral pacts between parties that were seeking to have an overall remain majority from Northern Ireland, very clearly expressed in Westminster. And part of those electoral pacts and coalitions in the campaigns meant that we had more of a rainbow representation from Northern Ireland than we've had for a very long time. So in the previous general election, with one exception, an independent MP, Northern Ireland was represented in Westminster by the DUP and Sinn Féin, Stark Green and Orange. Now we have two SDLP MPs, so more moderate Irish nationalism, very strongly pro-Remain, and an Alliance Party MP as well, a centrist, non-aligned candidate, again, standing on a Remain platform. So it's a fascinating situation because from Northern Ireland, we have a a more diverse representation of our MPs. We had a sort of growth of the centre ground, the middle ground in that general election. Whereas if you look across the Irish Sea to what happened in Britain, it was quite different. We had a sort of the erosion of the middle ground, if you like, and a very strong surge, of course, of support for Boris Johnson's Tory party. So although we now have more diverse representation from Northern Ireland and fair representation of the diversity of views in Northern Ireland, actually the influence that they can have in Westminster is much reduced given the size of Boris Johnson's majority. With just days to go until Britain votes, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has dismissed a leaked document which suggests there will be checks for goods travelling from Northern Ireland to mainland UK after Brexit. I haven't seen the document you're referring to, but that's complete nonsense. And uh, what I can tell you is that with the deal that we have, we can come out as one whole UK, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, together 
we can do free trade deals together. They should believe exactly what I say, which is there will be no checks on goods going from GB to NI, from NI to, to GB, because we are going to come out of the EU whole and entire. Despite these assurances made during the election campaign and they're reported by Euronews, Boris Johnson's huge win allowed him to ignore the DUP and essentially sign up to the EU's Brexit backstop. To avoid having customs and other checks between North and South in Ireland, the border between the UK and the EU will at least initially be the Irish Sea. Although more will be revealed by the end of the year when the shape of the UK-EU trade deal, if any, is unveiled, Northern Ireland remains in an unusual position, part of the UK, but also part of the EU. So we always have had this challenge. The UK leaves the EU, where does the border lie? And of course, a lot of the focus of the Brexit negotiations was trying to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland. But it still gave rise to the question of, well, where will these checks and controls take place? And... I think a big part of the challenge and the reason why the UK's exit date was pushed back and back was because of a refusal to really face the need for compromise over this. And eventually what happened was the decision was made effectively to have that border drawn down the Irish Sea for the movement of goods. And it is extremely significant because essentially within the UK now, after the end of transition, there will be two different regulatory zones. Northern Ireland will effectively be in the EU's regulatory zone, also effectively in the single market of the EU for goods and de facto in the EU's customs union. It is extraordinarily significant for the UK's internal market. Now, if you you can think about those things just in economic terms or indeed in legal terms, But it's impossible not to think of it also in terms of politics and the constitution of the UK when you come to Northern Ireland, because Northern Ireland's whole political scene is based around where the border lies and about the relationship between Britain and Ireland. So when we're sitting here in Northern Ireland, entering this transition period, looking at extreme political flux, both in the South and in Britain, and indeed including in Scotland, then we see why both nationalists and unionists within Northern Ireland feel quite insecure in some ways. But none of them, neither side, really trust the British government. Nationalists have never trusted the British government, of course. And unionists, too, feel very much betrayed by the fact that Boris Johnson decided to make the compromise in such a way that is compromising the UK's internal market, simply to get the UK out of the EU. One of the consequences you would have to imagine is that that coupling of Northern Ireland with the Republic of Ireland within that EU envelope is going to encourage thoughts or at least people to think more deeply about the idea of the reunification of Ireland, which can't have been what the Leave voters thought they were voting for when they voted to leave the EU in Northern Ireland. I don't think anybody would have imagined that Brexit would lead to the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland becoming less significant than between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, at least not in this way. 
I mean, it's worth remembering that actually where Northern Ireland is left by this withdrawal agreement is with harder borders all around. So it will have a harder border between itself and Great Britain when it comes to the movement of goods. But it will also have a harder Irish land border with the Republic of Ireland for the movement of services, capital and people. And so this is going to be very difficult to navigate for the power sharing executive in Northern Ireland. It raises many challenges. It's inevitable that these matters will be thought about in constitutional terms, in ideological terms, and whether it leads to United Ireland or the breakup of the UK, all of those things seem to be very much on the table and they're very much in political debate. But in the meantime, what it really does is raise extreme challenges for the devolved executive in Northern Ireland, those MLAs who've made the decision to compromise and to get back into power and Stormont, they're actually facing huge challenges, bearing in mind that, of course, Northern Ireland's trade is predominantly with Great Britain, it is predominantly across the Irish Sea. And if the all-Ireland economy is going to grow and be of benefit to Northern Ireland in navigating these changes and the economic challenges, then it requires a lot of leadership and um, careful management in Northern Ireland, such as we haven't seen before. And the real question is, can those things be negotiated and managed in ways that are purely functional rather than allowed to be taken up with ideological or, you know, um, conflictual kind of narratives. And it's, it's going to be interesting to see whether that's possible or not. You're listening to Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips on Radio National RN. Catching up on the latest from the island of Ireland, where seismic political shifts are opening up new possibilities for both Northern Ireland and the Republic south of the border. Very, very interesting how the Brexit negotiations advanced. Colin Harvey is Professor of Human Rights Law in the School of Law at Queen's University, Belfast. Already clear that Northern Ireland, like Scotland, voted clearly to remain in the European Union. And the island of Ireland became a major negotiating priority of the European Union during those negotiations, particularly the need to avoid a hard border, protect a Good Friday Agreement and ensure that North-South cooperation continues. So effectively what has happened as part of the withdrawal agreement, there's a protocol to the withdrawal agreement which provides for a special arrangement for Northern Ireland that avoids a hard border, but but as you've pointed out, many unionists are concerned about the implications for relationships between Northern Ireland and Britain, that idea of the, the border, if you like, moving to the Irish Sea. I think that was one of the inevitable consequences of Brexit. There would always be a desire to ensure there's no hard border on the island of Ireland. If you think about it, after Brexit, the border on the island of Ireland becomes external border of the European Union. There's tremendous anxiety here about the sort of borders of the past re-emerging as a result of Brexit. So a lot of work was done by the European Union, which is in itself a peace project, if you like, to ensure that that did not happen. There was a real concern. I myself was out in Brussels, you know, talking to the task force. What really struck me was the deep level of concern they had for ensuring that the peace process here on the island of Ireland was protected, even in the face of the challenge that was Brexit. As part of the agreement, the Northern Ireland Assembly will have a vote on the future of this border. 
Dr Peter McLaughlin is a historian at Queen's University Belfast. Certainly there is a mechanism to allow the people of Northern Ireland to have a say or through their representatives a say on what happens with the arrangements under Boris Johnson's deal that in 2024, so it's the idea that this will give a few few years to show how these arrangements would work, the Assembly in Belfast here will, will be allowed to have a vote on whether to continue with those arrangements which which effectively mean that Northern Ireland remains to all intents and purposes under EU regulations and in EU rules and so on. And so very advantageous, some might argue, that you still effectively can take part in the single single market and so on. But from a unionist point of view, you're more aligned with the Republic of Ireland and less with Great Britain. So that does give the opportunity that the people of Northern Ireland could say, no, we, we don't want that. But what happens is there's a simple majority vote in the Assembly, where, as you noted earlier, unions no longer enjoy a majority. Um, even some of the cross-community parties, like the Alliance Party particularly, which gets votes from both sides, is very pro-European and has attracted a lot of younger votes and those kind of votes I was talking about earlier. So it's very hard to imagine that certainly nationalists would not vote for an arrangement which might instead revert back to any kind of a border with Southern Ireland. But it's very unlikely the Belfast Assembly would vote to change the very special deal it's got where it kind of remains essentially as part, in terms of rules and regulations, part of the EU. So, yes, there is a democratic mechanism for that, but unionists won't have a veto on that. And so it seems that that would be very likely to continue. And that could have serious repercussions in terms of, well, obviously, economics. But longer term, that could have political repercussions, which I can go into if you want me to, but I'll pause there. Okay, because one of the interesting things, of course, is that the people of Northern Ireland have an interesting option, in a sense, one that's not been handed to the Scots, who would probably like the same, that they, in a way, will ultimately have a decision about whether they stay within the EU or decide to stick with the UK. That's exactly right, yes. Northern Ireland effectively will stay under EU regulations. For most an analysis, that, 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 that would be very advantageous. I mean, for all the reasons people have said that leaving is going to be costly and is going to disrupt trade, is going to have negative effects. So for a lot of economic analysis, this is the sensible thing to do, that Northern Ireland shares a land border with the Republic of Ireland. Therefore, it's the part of the United Kingdom which shares a land border with the EU, that this is a sensible thing to do to keep trade open. And there's a lot of trade that goes north and south and a lot of Irish trade comes up and even goes to the continent via Belfast. So there's all sorts of reasons why keeping that border open is important. It's very likely if economic experts are to be believed that, that you know this will be advantageous for, for, the, for Northern Ireland, that it will stay part of the EU. The problem where it will have politically, I would argue, some destabilising effects as things go on is, as already noted, there's this issue now of Eunice feeling like there's going to be a border between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, and that increases their sense of distance from the United Kingdom. But you can also see a situation where, although Northern Ireland is under EU regulations and and terms and so on, the United Kingdom no longer has any say in what those rules are. Previously, as part of the EU, it had a voice like France, like Ireland, like everyone else in deciding what the rules of trade were. It will no longer have that. The the government that will have that is, is the Irish government, which remains part of the EU. So you could imagine a situation where those who are affected economically, whether it's farmers who have to comply by certain EU regulations, whether it's businesses which have to comply with certain EU standards, all sorts of particularly economic interest groups will, rather than looking to London, because London won't have any influence in the EU laws, will look to Dublin. So you can again see how that in the longer term is more destabilising for unions because it will create 
economic reasons and economic dynamics towards greater cooperation north and south and for particularly for for even unionist business interests and farming interests to look southward to look to dublin because dublin would have a role in in, in trying to if there were the problems in the legislation to try and get that change for northern ireland so you can see how that would play into unionist fears about how there's not so much a political dynamic but actually an economic dynamic towards greater cooperation north and south that could have political implications One of the implications is, of course, the idea of the reunification of Northern Ireland and the Republic. The Good Friday Agreement has a right to self-determination, sometimes described as the principle of consent. Northern Ireland itself as a region remains part of the UK only by consent. Uh, The European Union has made clear, the European Council in April 2017 said that if, if Northern Ireland voted to join the rest of Ireland, if you like, if, if Ireland decided to reunify, it would automatically be a member of the European Union. So one of the, the intriguing constitutional conversations that's happening right now is that Irish reunification via the Good Friday Agreement now becomes a way back, a way back for Northern Ireland to the European Union. That's increasingly reframing that conversation about the future of this island. And I think the Brexit deal, if you like, that protocol that we've talked about, the special arrangements, you know, I think it accelerates that conversation because increasingly people in Northern Ireland, and and you pick this up, the, the south of Ireland just looks like the better bet. Many people here really, to be candid, don't want to follow Boris and Brexit Britain wherever they might be going in the future. There'd have to be a majority vote for reunification in both North and South for it to happen. And Peter McLaughlin says people aren't necessarily looking for constitutional change. The key point is, as things stand, there is not a majority. And there is also an argument to make that if Northern Ireland stays, as as I'm suggesting it likely will under EU regulations, that as nationalists for a long time in Northern Ireland have, have shown, they're quite happy for the status quo to continue. That it's questionable whether even most nationalists would. They, they may vote for nationalist parties, but if they were given the choice of the potential unknown of a united Ireland and the costs that may bring and whether, whether the Republic of Ireland can afford to integrate Northern Ireland, that's a whole different kettle of fish. Before Brexit, nationalist surveys would show we're, we're very happy with the situation where they had their Irish passport, they had their right, to, the border meant nothing, and, and they wouldn't necessarily vote for United Ireland. Things could change massively now as a result of Brexit, but then that, we're in a very unknown world in lots of ways, so you can't predict those things. And what I would say is just the possibility of there being fundamental constitutional change is more likely, but to say that it's going to happen in the next 20, 30 years would be very foolish as well. In recent elections, we have seen the rise of what we call in Northern Ireland the middle ground, okay? So this is the Alliance Party, the Green Party, people who just don't subscribe to a constitutional position, okay? We are seeing the rise of those parties. So, for example, at the recent Westminster election in December, the Alliance Party got the third most votes of any other party. They took 17% of the vote, which is a record for them. They, They have never polled as high in an election. In Northern Ireland, and if you go back, we had local and European elections in May of 2019 as well. And the Alliance Party and the Green Party did very, very well in both of those elections. So, so those are parties who, who, who reject the unionist and nationalist labels. Now, having said that, whilst their numbers are growing, a majority of people in Northern Ireland still do vote on unionist and nationalist lines. The constitution is still a big issue for many voters in Northern Ireland. 
but it's becoming less and less so. We're seeing social issues like your position on marriage equality, your position on abortion, the position on Brexit as well. I mean, Brexit has transcended many party lines as well. Um, Many people who would be concerned about Northern Ireland's future outside the European Union. That has really helped shift politics as well in Northern Ireland too. So, So whilst most people still do vote on a constitutional issue, it is becoming less and less so. Something new has swept through Ireland. Voters flocking to Sinn Féin in greater numbers than anyone predicted. A party followed by the shadows of its past. In Mary Lou Macdonald's Dublin constituency, the leader of Sinn Féin, the cost of living is sky high. For Daniel, who converted a garage to afford a place to live, the Sinn Féin breakthrough is a welcome change. In a city with a housing crisis, the party promised rent freezes and more homes. A BBC report on the astonishing result in the general election in the Irish Republic two weeks ago, when Sinn Féin won the largest number of first preference votes, disrupting the formerly predictable exchange of power between the two centre-right parties that have dominated politics in the South for decades. It's an extraordinary outcome in the election. Everybody is surprised. So even though Sinn Féin had been topping the polls just before the election, Seeing Sinn Féin coming out with the largest portion of first preference votes is something that I don't think anybody was predicting. It seems as though the two-party system that we've assumed existed in the Republic of Ireland for so long is now thrown out of the window and we're very much dealing with at least a three-party system. And we'll see what comes through then in the negotiations to set up a government. It's worth looking at the parallels between what happened in Northern Ireland in the general election and the, and then in the Republic of Ireland in the general election in that we have people voting for parties that they'd never voted for before. And for similar reasons too, i.e. concern about sort of public policies and public services and also desire to see change and a frustration with the representation of their society and their sense of voicelessness. And those trends are the same North and South But of course, it's resulted in people voting for different parties. So in the South, they're voting for Sinn Féin as a kind of left-wing protest vote. And up here, they were voting for the Alliance Party in a similar vein. After their strong showing in the Irish elections, Sinn Féin have become a political force on both sides of the Irish border, fueling talk of future reunification. We have seen polling data, north and south, that suggests now a majority north and south would be in favour of Irish unity. We have to treat those figures with caution. The most reliable data would suggest it's not quite so clear, particularly in Northern Ireland. Although many people, when they're responding in the North, have been saying, well, a lot depends on the nature of Brexit and whether we have a hard Brexit and the nature of the Irish border. So what we can be pretty sure about is that the issue of Irish unity and what relationship we have between Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland and indeed Britain is very much a live issue. And this is the irony of Brexit in some ways in that the Good Friday Belfast Agreement had seemed to not resolve the issue but manage it in a sort of settled way. And Brexit has thrown all of these things back up into the air again. European integration is all about you know, crossing borders and cooperation across borders, borders becoming less significant. Brexit is about borders becoming more significant. 
And the question is how Northern Ireland manages that. And can we think in imaginative terms about how relations across all the borders around Northern Ireland will be into the future? Can they be cooperative in a way that doesn't end up in constitutional change for Northern Ireland? Or is it inevitable that we will begin to think in very detailed and practical terms about what Irish unity might look like? And this is a this is a genuine live and open question at the moment. And a lot depends on this younger generation who we can see from the recent election results, North and South are becoming politically active and, and mobilised. Dr Katie Haywood from Queen's University, Belfast. The other guests were David McCann from the website Slugger O'Toole and Professor Colin Harvey and Dr Peter McLaughlin, both from Queen's University, Belfast. If you'd like to know more about the Irish border, check out the links on the webpage for this rear vision. You'll hear a man who walked the length of it. Jenny Parsonage is the sound engineer for this rear vision. Thanks for listening. Bye from Kerry Phillips. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.